Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, Indigenous Works is a national organization tasked with helping to create opportunities for Indigenous companies. President and CEO Kelly Lenzik says part of that has been to increase Indigenous engagement. And Kelly will talk about the work of the organization and a new project to develop a national strategy to improve diversity and inclusion of Indigenous groups in the Canadian agriculture and agri-food sector. The first protein fractionation plant for faba bean is slated to begin operations this fall. It will be located in an existing mill north of Edmonton, Alberta. The facility will continue to produce a substitute for peanut butter with the feedstock switched from peas to faba beans. Brad Gowdy is the president of Faba Canada and he'll talk about the conversion of the plant and exciting opportunities for faba bean growers. After the break, Kelly Lenze. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarland. Kelly Lenze is the president and CEO of Indigenous Works. The organization is part of a strategy to improve diversity and inclusion of Indigenous businesses and groups in the agriculture and agri-food sector and others. So, Kelly, first of all, let's talk about Indigenous Works and tell me about your organization. Sure. I mean, thank you very much and real pleasure to be doing this this interview and sharing some insights on on in, on work, indigenous strategies and inclusion. Um, interestingly enough, we came we've been around for 22 years. We came out of the uh, report on the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People as one of the recommendations. And there was 434 at the time. And our focus was on creating engagements between corporate Canada and indigenous people to drive jobs still is the same mandate to this state. Um, the things that we have done have been really focusing on workplace strategies, uh, engaging people around workforce uh, outcomes, uh, looking at skills and employment. And really a lot of the work, Alice, has been working with mainstream Canadian firms to help them develop their Indigenous inclusion strategies. So it's been an interesting journey over, over the last uh, 22 years. And uh, we've made some real headway helping companies benchmark their workplace inclusion efforts, helping we've designed a number of systems and tools that really help companies mobilize their strategies and improve their performance and ultimately generate more jobs and workplace inclusion. So let's talk about Luminary Initiative. Uh, What is it? What role is it playing in also creating some of these opportunities for Indigenous communities? Well, Luminary came out of the need to focus on uh, innovation. Um, We have in Canada one of the fastest growing workforces in Canada. Today we have 1.5 million Indigenous people. Our gross domestic product is $27 billion, growing to $37 billion over the next decade. We have, as I said, entrepreneurism is growing about five to seven times faster in the Indigenous community with more than 50,000 Indigenous businesses and about 500 community-owned economic development corporations. So there's, you can hear a lot about the negative news, but there are some positive trajectories, and nations are rebuilding. Um, nations are looking at how to grow their economies. They're looking at how to grow partnerships and generate jobs, education opportunities. And this is in light of, Alice, in light of 
the tragedies. I mean, everybody is now hearing about the grave sides and the children and the different mass grave sites that are being uncovered, and there will be more. This is not news to Indigenous people, and so it's complicated. You're dealing with social, economic, moral, community issues. And as we started to do this work, we started to see opportunities, and we started to ask the academic community how they're engaging with Indigenous people, and how could we use research and innovation to grow and support Indigenous economic priorities? Now, this is not to Canada, and it's not new to any nation around the world. Every nation embraces innovation as a driver of change. And so really what we're doing is we're saying, how do we build a culture of innovation? How do we address the engagement gap between the academic and the Indigenous business community to really create new product lines, look at new economic priorities, emerging priorities, that will ultimately lead to business growth and that will drive jobs. So it's another way to get at the job growth strategy, but through a research and innovation agenda. Education obviously plays a key role in in all of this going forward. You've made connections with post-secondary institutions, uh, two in particular in Saskatchewan and I think right across the country, but but the education component of preparation to to get to this place, I'm sure, is part of part of your work. Well, what's amazing is we in 2019 engaged and talked with 500 Canadians from the academic, the Indigenous, and NGO community. We did this very deep engagement exercise. We worked with research agencies like MyTax. We worked with NSERC, which is the National Sciences Engineering Research. Council, SHRC, which is the Social Sciences Engineering Research Council. And we saw that there was a tremendous blue ocean, and indeed there was this gap. In 2020, we started to pull together partners and develop out uh, what would we, how would we approach developing out this Indigenous innovation ecosystem. And to date, we have 140 Luminary Charter partners. We have over 70 universities and colleges across Canada. I have over half of the business schools in Canada as as luminary partners. We have over 50 indigenous businesses and economic development corporations, and we have a number of NGOs and foundations. So it's a pretty eclectic group, pretty amazing group of committed organizations who are working with us now, right now in 2021. This spring, we started the planning work to develop a five-year strategy and plan that would support both the academic, the indigenous business side of this luminary equation. Agriculture is such a growing sector in Canada and uh, we've been hearing an awful lot most recently about different areas that have been expanding. The plant-based food sector is one in particular that comes to mind. And um, what role do you think agriculture and agri-food sector can can play in this uh, expansion and uh, creating opportunities for Indigenous uh, communities? Well, what's interesting, as we were developing out the strategy concepts for Luminary, two emerging priorities uh, were, were, were brought forward by members. 
One was around talent. What's happening with indigenous talent in terms of uh, university uh, and college researchers and education. And we, we sourced some funds and we're doing some research around the career trajectories and aspirations of indigenous uh, folks in the career uh, and research sector. The other emerging priority was agribusiness and it's and what's top of mind for all Canadians as a result of COVID, food sovereignty and food security. Where's our food coming from? What's the supply chain? Um, and where do we and how do we grow the, the, the foods we need uh, for Canadians? And so this focus on food sovereignty is not new to Indigenous people. Um, but it really amplified the focus. We also knew that Canada's recovery plan is one of the areas that they were banking on was agribusiness. So we approached Protein Industry uh, Council, the Protein Industry Canada, PIC, Ag Canada, um, Nutrien, who is a private sector company, and Farm Credit Corporation, who we've been working with, Universities like uh, University of Saskatchewan, Regina, Ryerson, Carleton. We started to put together a, uh, a proposal concept which was funded and actually was just announced about a week ago. A press release went out announcing the one that you're referring to, Alice, um, announcing that we, we are moving ahead with this uh, initiative, Luminary in Agribusiness. And so it's a really exciting time. It will be an example of what Luminary can do in a sectoral area, agribusiness. And we've had an opportunity to meet with the 13 deans of agriculture across Canada, some of the indigenous groups, and we're just at the very early stages of rolling out this agribusiness strategy and planning work. This is um, early days for this, uh, but there is already Indigenous involvement in agriculture. And uh, do you have any particular stories that you'd like to share with us uh, about some of the work that's been done and, and the benefits that have that rolled back into communities? Well, what's interesting is you're correct that agriculture is not new. In fact, it's thousands of years old. Um, I mean, two-thirds of today's food sources uh, came from from indigenous people uh interesting about mendelssohn when he was doing the gene uh, genetic experiments the huron had already identified 37 different varieties of corn and beans so doing research and innovating in, in agribusiness is not new but but one of the gaps and where we're starting is no one has mapped out the sector we actually don't know which indigenous groups or entrepreneurs or communities are doing an agribusiness, what sectors or subsectors that they're in, how long they've been in the sector, where they would like to go, whether it's from the proteins to agriculture to berries and, and so on. So this mapping exercise is going to be valuable to all the players. It will be a way to benchmark our progress It'll be a way to support and amplify the current efforts, and it will stimulate partnerships between mainstream and Indigenous groups to expand uh, agribusiness efforts. Kelly Lindsay is the President and CEO of Indigenous Works, and Kelly will be back with us on next week's AgriPod, and he'll tell us about how Indigenous Works is collaborating with organizations like Protein Industries Canada to make more opportunities for Indigenous people in the agri-food sector.
After the break, President of Faba Canada Brad Gowdy will talk about a new faba bean fractionation plant in Alberta. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. With me is Brad Gowdy, the president of Faba Canada, and uh, we're talking about a new faba bean fractionation plant in Alberta. And the beans will be primarily sourced from the parkland regions of Alberta and Saskatchewan. So, Brad, first of all, tell us about the origins of the company Faba Canada. Well, I started doing uh, grain marketing consulting over ten years ago. And recognized, especially in uh, in northeast Saskatchewan and throughout the parkland, that uh, farmers needed another crop, and especially uh, a pulse that would be a good fit in the area, be resistant to some of the uh, diseases, uh, especially phanomyces that affected peas, and uh, could handle the wet conditions that we will often get. And so um, I was quite involved with oats. Uh, and uh, working on on creating more marketing opportunities for farmers, and um, but some of my growers uh, were growing faba beans, and they said, uh, "Man, these grow great here, but the market's a disaster. Uh, do you think you could help develop markets for for these beans as well?" And so I don't think I even knew what a faba bean was at the time, but uh, thought, "Sure, I'd love that challenge." And uh, that was five or six years ago, and I dove in to uh, learn everything I possibly could about uh, faba beans, right from plant breeding and agronomy uh, to uh, chemical and nutritional makeup, and then to markets, both uh, present markets and potential markets. Now, this um, fractionation plant uh, that will be opening uh, north of Edmonton, it's an existing mill right now. So uh, tell us uh, how this whole process is going to work and the conversion that's needed to move it from peas to faba beans. I guess uh, being uh, based out of northeast Saskatchewan originally, I and uh, with helping farmers uh, market beans and ramp up acres uh, in that area, uh, I assumed the first mill would be there, but I was made aware of um, of this facility north of Edmonton by uh, some farmers that had attended some meetings that I ran in Alberta. And uh, generally, getting a fractionation mill up and running from scratch is um, going to cost you minimum forty to fifty million dollars. But with having a, an existing facility available. Uh, we're able to do it for a fraction of that cost and get rolling in a few months rather than a few years. So this facility was a a pea processing facility years ago. Uh, They also developed a a peanut butter alternative product over the years and and, and did that as well. But uh, the owners were getting up in years and... uh, not really having the energy to um, continuing to develop markets and uh, and market their product, and so we were able to to get it uh, fairly inexpensively, and it's still in uh, in great shape. So I think the plan was originally set up a a facility in Saskatchewan and then do one in Alberta later. But uh, with this facility, uh, it it put me in a position where we kind of swapped that. 
Now let's talk a little bit about um, some of the advantages of fava beans you've kind of touched on already, but I know that peas have been a very popular protein. What are some of the advantages uh, with fabas as compared to peas? Uh, Well, fava beans are generally higher in protein than peas, and they have, um, even though all pulses have a, excuse me, kind of an unpleasant aftertaste, uh, fava beans have a milder aftertaste than peas. So, but to me, the big thing is, um, especially in areas that get much moisture, they uh, they don't recommend growing peas much more than uh, every eight or ten years, and uh, because of uh, athanomyces issues, and and a lot of areas through the parkland are experiencing that. So fava beans are um, resistant to athanomyces, and they also like the uh, the cooler, wetter weather that we usually get um, across the uh, the parkland area as well. And uh, they, even though they're, the one drawback with them compared to peas is they're a longer season crop, but they stand tall and they pod 8 to 12 inches off the ground generally. So even though they're a bit later, they're, they don't run into a lot of the issues that you can run into peas um, at harvest time if they lie down in the mud and, and things like that. Now, there's been some discussion about the strong taste um, with some of these pulses, and there's a new process that you've uh, that has been created to remove that aftertaste. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So we've uh, developed a, a process uh, to uh, to remove that aftertaste. Um, one of the one of the big problems that we are hearing from food. Uh, uh, food processors or food ma- manufacturers is that they have to add a number of strong tasting ingredients to um, pea protein and even uh, some fava protein as well to cover up that aftertaste. And so the unfortunate part there is that it adds a bunch of cost to it and it also clutters up the label with a lot of food companies more and more wanting to be clean label, which is very uh, having a very minimal amount of ingredients on there. So by us being able to uh, deflavor uh, this protein uh, in a natural way, we don't add any chemicals or anything like that, uh, it, it is a real, um, real advantage for food companies that way. Now, I understand that Fabric Canada has um, control of a new variety of faba beans called Fabels. So tell us about this uh, this new variety and some of the advantages. Um, well, right off the bat, uh, when I started learning and, and digging in uh, to find out all I could about faba beans, uh, they've got a number of anti-nutritional properties in them. And so one is tannin, and, and tannin, uh, uh, in some markets, they like tannin because it creates a bitter taste. In the hog market, they really don't like it because hogs won't eat a bitter product. But the other, uh, the other anti-nutritional properties that uh, faba beans are known for are called visine-convisine. And it's, uh, it's linked to a, a very rare but potentially serious health issue called favism. And uh, even though it's rare, enough food companies are 
you know, uh, have come out and said they would, you know, they don't want to use faba bean protein or faba bean flour because, well, none of us want to harm anybody's health. But um, I had um, I found out uh, early on that there was some breeding development work to uh, to put out varieties that were uh, we call it low visine convisine, which just means the that pro- or those properties have been bred out about 99%. And so I've always felt that that was kind of an Achilles heel that faba beans had. But with this variety, uh, we were able to pick it up and do a lot of uh, um, research work on it. It was actually available in Canada for about eight years, but uh, somehow no one else was interested in it over all that time. And uh, we found that they, uh, we've, we've uh, I had some farmers around the Melford area try some last year. There was some grown north of Edmonton the year before. And we found that uh, they yielded very well. They stood up very well. Uh, very good quality in the beans. And uh, even though they were a few days longer uh, for the plant to mature, the beans actually matured earlier and we had um, a lot better quality out of them. The majority of the product uh, that you're going to source for the plant will come from uh, the parkland regions of Saskatchewan and Alberta. Just exactly how much do you need for processing for a year's worth? Um, To start with, we will process about 16,000 tonnes. But uh, uh, even though we have a facility here, we only have enough space for about one line of production in it. And the plan is to uh, put up a much, a much larger facility uh, on site um, the next year. So some of that will be determined by uh, uh, the company putting um, a lot of uh, sample product into the hands of several dozen food companies. And, uh, and we'll kind of uh, take their response on, on how many acres we put in and how how big uh, the facility goes the first year or how many lines of production, I guess, we put in. So we, we will have, uh, we seeded, I had growers seed just under 10,000 acres of Fabels this year, and we'll have enough seed for uh, uh, 100,000 acres or more next year, which is uh, about what Canada grows right now. So um, if, we, uh, if we continue to see positive results from... Uh, a much larger scale of Fabels this year, uh, then uh, we can confidently go ahead and, and have farmers put in, uh, like I say, uh, you know, potentially up to 100,000 acres next year. Lots of exciting things going on for, for faba beans for the industry right now. I'm sure this is occupying a good uh, chunk of your time right now. What's the dream down the road? <laughs> well, I guess... Uh, Growing up, the son of Ken Gowdy, who was quite instrumental in um, helping canola get to what it is today, um, I've always been, um, uh, you know, canola's always been a big part of our family. And with the um, with the concerns about some of the diseases getting into the soil affecting canola, I thought, you know, what, what initially motivated me was um, how do we protect canola? What else can we grow here that's going to be profitable that will encourage guys to spread canola out in their rotation. But now it's kind of taken on a life of its own. 
And uh, I don't doubt that we could see um, Western Canada get up to a million acres of fava beans or more and um, really start to make uh, not, on, not only a positive difference in parkland agriculture, uh, but also in the food world that is so uh, um, moving, you know, moving in a, a new direction with plant-based protein. So we want to be a part of that and um, uh, just, uh, you know, see, see where it goes in the future. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? Well, we, we are doing our, uh, our official chair offering uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks here. And um, one thing is I, I, I never want to twist anybody's arm to uh, invest in our company, but we definitely want to leave room for farmers uh, to, to be part of this. Um, we want to be a very farmer-friendly company, and uh, I believe that we should be um, very helpful in, in giving farmers a, a great crop to grow, but also would love to uh, partner with them um, on the investment side as well. Brad Gowdy is the president of FABA Canada. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of July 5th, 2021. A farmer-led coalition is calling for the creation of a program to improve market transparency for farmers. The producer groups believe Agriculture Canada's current review of the Canada Grain Act provides an opportunity to expand the Canadian Grain Commission's responsibilities to collect data. The groups strongly believe that Canadian farmers need timely access to sales and export data and saying that American farmers have had access to this type of information since 1973. The groups represented in the coalition include the Agriculture Producers Association of Saskatchewan and grower groups including barley, canola, flax, oats, pulse and wheat. Saskatchewan's Agriculture Minister David Merritt has reiterated there is no plan at this time to move the compensation rate for agri stability from 70 to 80 percent. Merritt said the biggest farm request he had in this whole process was to remove the margin limit to agri stability, which was done. He said if there was a substantial uptake in agri stability, the cost of the province could hit $20 million or higher. Parish and Heimbecker said it will be ready to take grain deliveries at its new elevator near Yorkton, Saskatchewan next June. The facility will be constructed on its existing site and will replace the elevator that's been at that location since 1980. The elevator will have 25,000 tons of grain storage and a 150-car loop track, which will be serviced by CN Rail. Groundwork for the elevator and rail loop has started with concrete work beginning later this summer. Vito Intervac is pursuing two potential options for protecting pigs from the ravages of African swine fever. ASF has not been found in North America, but it continues to spread in Europe and Asia. Vito Associate Director of Research Dr. Andrew Van Kessel said because this virus is complex, vaccine development has been challenging and projecting a time frame is difficult. Redleaf Pulp will receive funding through the Saskatchewan Advantage Innovation Fund to develop wheat straw pulping technologies. The $395,000 is in addition to the $495,000 from the Federal Clean Technology Fund. Red Pulp 
is leading a project to produce pulp from wheat straw, which could be used to manufacture paper and packaging products. It will also be working with researchers at the University of Saskatchewan to develop additional high-value applications. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarland for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarland, and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.